Hello, and welcome to Truth and Learning. I'm Matthew Richter, and I'm here with my partner in crime, my mentor, my friend, the guy I would jump off a ledge with. <laughs> oh, I follow like a lemming, Will Talheimer. Hi, Will. Are you calling me a little rodent? No, I was calling... You well, did. actually, what do the lemmings follow? They follow some... Isn't it like a dog? Force. Isn't it like a dog or something? Or, no, no, they just go running off the edge. Oh, so you're like the the force from Star Wars? Yeah, okay, right. You're, you you're really a, turn that around. I, I'm there for you. So anyway, welcome to the show, Will. How have you been? I have been great, Matt. It's a beautiful sunny day here in uh, sunny Somerville, Massachusetts. I love Somerville. It never feels like summer than Somerville, but it's it probably does in the middle of July, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're just not even taking the bait. Well, because I'm trying to decide whether I should explain this. Somerville spelled S-O-M-E-R. Or just stop <laughs> talking about it. You're so literal. I am so precise. I know, that. you're right? precise. This is truth and learning. That is true. Ha <laughs> ha. Okay. So, Will, we, we actually have a really cool interview that we're going to do in our second segment with Kara North. Actually, you uh, was, was it a spontaneous conversation? You just called her up and... She wrote a brilliant uh, post in LinkedIn uh, describing a scam that is going off, going on in the industry uh, and relates to education. And uh, I wanted to talk to her about it to find out uh, what was there. And we talked and I said, hey, let's record a segment. You want to do it? She goes, okay. <laughs> so we did it. <laughs> well, she did great. And I, I can't wait to air it and then talk with you about it um, because it, it kind of opens up so many different aspects of the industry beyond the professional groups we've talked about in the past. So it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, you and I also wanted to talk about two other things. So the, the first centered around an engagement you had with someone also on LinkedIn. We really need to get lives, Will. We're on LinkedIn too much. I guess so. Yeah. So, but you you had an exchange with uh, someone on LinkedIn that really highlighted some some major concerns you and I both have about uh, what's getting put out there as as research, what's getting put out there uh, as fact, and uh, how actual research is getting misconstrued and misapplied. And so we were going to talk about that. And it's then, the uh, it's the danger of the word processor. I, think. <laughs> uh, I thought we word processors are dead now. They just have apps. Well, I mean, keypads and word, you know, type uh, words. Get off my lawn. So, uh, get off my lawn. Come on, you didn't see the the Clint Eastwood movie? Uh, yeah, I, I think I saw that one. Grand Torino. He says that in about it. Yeah, I saw that one. <laughs> get off my lawn. I, I love think that he line. He says that in every movie, you know. It, it, that'll, that'll teach me to go through a Clint Eastwood mar marathon on an airplane. So anyway, our third segment, this one makes me very happy, is to talk about uh, a possible error we're making in our industry segmenting different types of media platforms uh, around learning, whether it's webinars or I, I like calling them LVOTs. Uh, right, uh, live virtual online training, uh, but other people call them VILTS or virtual instructor-led training and so forth. 
uh, versus in-person training versus synchronous or asynchronous. All of these different segmentations of platform, I think, are actually limiting the way we think about learning and limiting the way in which we design learning. And so we're going to have a little talk about that. And we'll, of course, end with best and worst. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. Before we do, though, we actually are getting letters to the editor. We are. That's pretty uh, you know, cool. It's very cool. It's very cool. You know, we, have, um, we have fans. My dad uh, wrote one, right? <laughs> he did? And, and didn't your mom? Well, my, yeah, I had all my siblings call into our voice line. <laughs> That's right. And my sister did. So we're going, we're doing re really well. Yeah. So, so, but no, seriously, we actually are getting mail. That's pretty cool. Is any yes. of it uh, positive or is it all uh, critiquing the fact that we have voices and faces for radio? Oh, my God. Oh, I think I'm just stopped. Goodbye, Matt. <laughs> okay well, i'll tell you wait wait uh, if you go i gotta do the show without you right yeah that's even worse um, <laughs> for, for <whom>? <laughs> okay so uh yeah we have a listener page people should know if you go to the truth in learning website that's truthinlearning.com you have a listener page you go up there to the top right corner you can see the page you click on it and magic happens there and you can input some ideas for us uh, we have a standard set of questions for you. Um, and in the last few months, we had like, uh, you know, several people, and I'm going to name some of the names, Peter Fitzpatrick, Jill Easterday, Sanjita Srinivasan, and Michael Kennedy. And uh, they, asked her, they answered some of our standard set of, sets of questions. One question we asked people is, what do you like about what we're doing? And so I'm going to share that with you, Matt. Great. Go ahead. Uh, uh, one person said, um, very accessible, both in terms of content and I can listen where and when I want. Another person said, I love the debunking. It helps to see the truth of theories. Also Wait, gives us hold on. I want to debate whether he actually loves it. We should well, it debunk a, that. It could, it could be a woman as well. Yeah. See, we've debunked the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, also gives lots to ponder over concepts in your mind. So we're putting concepts in people's minds or we're tickling the concepts that are already in their minds. And we are becoming legends in our own minds. So here's another positive thing. You're just ignoring said. my riff. I, I am ignoring you because you told me we have to move more quickly. So <laughs> I'm just going to ignore you. For it was now. a letter on our letter page. <laughs> uh, this person said, and, 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 and you know, on some level, you've done me a disservice. Now that you've made it so easy for our fellow L&D people to be evangelized into the flock of evidence-based practitioners, I find myself losing all patience for those who won't see the light. Ah, oh, that's actually kind of my favorite one. That's but a good one. I will one. find it in my heart to forgive you. Keep up the great work. Now, here's what they didn't like. Mm. This person, we asked, what did you, what, what was bad? What should we do better? They said, nothing. It's all good, great. So that's like a positive on a negative. That is a good one. And there's another one. This person said, they said, there's a lot of discussion. Your style is to play devil's advocate to each other. Maybe a summary at the end of the discussion would give the listener, uh, leave the listener with a clearer picture. That's interesting because uh, I'm not always sure I have a clear picture at the end. Sometimes I have to ponder. Yeah. 
You know, one of the cool things about what you and I do is we don't actually talk about this stuff in advance. And so sometimes I have a perspective that gets changed by you. Uh, and I have to think about it. The last negative comment was, and Matt, I think this is directed to you. Of course. Um, I love the theme music at first, but it definitely has a shelf life. Great. So we accept donations so we can buy non-free music. We would be happy to accept donations. Or sponsorships. Or sponsorships. Yeah, we'd be happy to. But unfortunately, the music we have that's free and available to us is uh, limited. So you know, maybe maybe we could get somebody like Beyonce or Adele to sponsor. Or Cheap Trick. Or Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick. <laughs> hey, I just, are you kidding? I was just with them. What? Yeah, I just was with them in Albany, New York at the concert. I got to hang out with them before the concert. I have a picture of me with them. Really? Yeah, you want to see it? Can we put that up on the... Uh, yeah, but in the meantime, I'm going to share show you. Okay. I'm going to show you this picture. So I, I share my you, desktop. Do you actually know the people in the band? Why do you think I, I love these people? I've known them my whole life. I love Cheap Trick. They are the greatest, but no, I don't actually know them personally where I can. Uh, well, how did uh, you get behind the stage and get a picture with them? I have ways. Oh my gosh. With my cousin, Mark, I'll post the picture in our notes. So in the name of uh, transitioning, now we move into our first segment. So That's Will, great. let's talk about this, this debate you had. Can you lay some context? Oh, yeah, the LinkedIn debate. Yeah. It wasn't a debate. No, no. It's, it's not it was a murder. It was a killing. It was a massacre. So um, uh, someone online, and we're not going to name their names. Name their names. It could be two people. It could be seven. It could be one. Um, it could be female or male. This person put a post in LinkedIn that linked to an article that he or she had written. And when you read the article, uh, it had a number of uh, factual in, in things that were wrong. Okay. Uh, this person uh, encouraged the use of learning styles, but it wasn't about learning styles. The argument was that e-learning was better than classroom training. And uh, they cited like the Research Institute of America and uh, some other things that just weren't that accurate. So I, I wrote a, I wrote, I said, you know, your post is full of falsehoods. And here's the problem with it. Please don't encourage learning styles. There's tons of research to show that this is not an effective method. And I uh, pointed out that the Research Institute of America was not an ongoing enterprise. And that uh, if you look it up, it used to be an enterprise, but it was related to accounting and economics and had uh, some nefarious ties to uh, right-wing <laughs> crazy groups. <laughs> and so it had nothing to do with e-learning. So why would you cite that? And such and such and such. And this, that was, you know, that's a normal LinkedIn discussion, right? You know, uh, and then this person later, after a few days, wrote back and said, well, I've, I've rewritten the article now. Uh, I found lots of more evidence from my point of view. 
And, uh, you know, those of you who are disagreeing with me can have a happy day. <laughs> and, you know, what was disturbing to me is this person was trying to make a point. They are in the business of sort of e-learning-ish. I'm going to not do, be too specific so we don't pinpoint this person, but they're on the learning technology side. And they're basically claiming that learning technology is better than no learning technology, which is not true. Um, and uh, then, so that was bad enough. There's all these falsehoods there and they're encouraging learning styles. So you wonder about them. But then the worst part to me is that when they were, were uh, when they learned that they were incorrect and that their article was not as credible as it might be, they went out and looked for evidence to confirm their uh, argument. We call that confirmatory bias in the research field. And, Hold on, uh, Will, if I, if I can interrupt you. I think yeah. this is a really important idea here. The, the, the notion of, I think there's a tendency for a lot of people to default to confirmatory bias. All and, of us. Right. And, and if you are challenged rather than accepting the challenge and trying to, to debate the issues on their merits, to go look for things to revalidate your perspective, there's a, an inherent problem with that approach. Right. And, and I think we should name it. Right. Let, let's let's go through why confirmatory bias is problematic. Is that fair? Absolutely. I'd be I'd love to have that discussion. Okay. So number one, the biggest problem with it is you actually ignore the things that are are challenging your perspective. You you right. completely completely uh, uh, <laughs> run away from or avoid uh, the discussion of the things that are are being. Uh, found fault with your your views and so that's problem number one problem number two when you go look for perspectives that validate your view you're probably ignoring some of the basic tenets of, of good science research which is that those views are independent those views are replicated those views uh, have good research methodology to back them up and so forth all the things we've talked about in the past but confirmatory bias tends to lead us to grab research that's not actually research, but often opinions, often uh, information that that uh, is lacking rigor. What are some other reasons why this is problematic? Well, and the bottom line is we're hopefully trying to search for what's real, what's true. Uh, we don't, we, yes. you know, if we're if we're if we're a, a speaker or we are a blogger or we're a LinkedIn post writer, we're trying to convey information that's valuable to other people. Right. We just try to defend ourselves and write what we believe without evidence. Uh, we're likely to get into trouble and send information that's not valid, not the truth. Uh, that will hurt our audience. And if we all started doing that, if we just, you know, we'd have, you know, like, what political chaos. <laughs> like the reality of our politics and uh, well, it's echo like going, chambers. Oh. It's like going to enough doctors to get a diagnosis you like. <laughs> yeah. Right? Right. There's, a, there's a wonderful documentary about the Flat Earth Society. 
And uh, there's a scene in the movie, but I'll put the, the uh, link to it. It's a Netflix documentary. I'll put the link in the notes. Uh, there's a, oh, it's actually a horrifying scene. Uh, these guys are taking what they believe strongly is a research perspective. And so they're running experiments that they think will prove the earth is flat. And then when the experiments don't work, why? Because the earth isn't flat. They said it must be the wind or it must or be the instruments. Something. Right, right. Right. And I so we're going to go down this part of the hill and try again. And they have all this intricate math, which is really not math. It's just a bunch of numbers thrown around the wall. And, and it, it's almost sad and terrifying uh, how, how rigorous they are in their lack of rigor. And uh, this is what I feel like this gentleman did with you. Yeah, well, and let's be a little humble here, or have some humility about this. Every human being has a tendency toward confirmatory bias. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I we, mean, we, need, we need to do something special to fight it. And one thing we do is we listen and we're open. And, or, we, and ask questions. We ask questions, we get people's, other people's perspectives. Um, you do this very nicely on uh, LinkedIn, by the way. You often come off with a very strong statement. What was your statement today? Um, oh, kill the opener or something like that. that Down it? with the icebreaker. Down with the icebreaker. And then you put this out there and you put it out and, and you get a lot of responses. And some people come back and say, well, it depends. And then you listen to them and you go, well, yeah, you've changed your mind. So that kind of, you know, it's okay to come out with strong arguments um, as long as you're listening and can sort of fix them if they're broken. Well, I, I ha we had a conversation once with uh, Patty Shank and Julie Dirksen uh, about, you know, part of our responsibility is not to kill people for having views that we find really problematic and that we're not going to change their minds by going toe to toe with them. That we, the only way we're going to have an influence is by understanding where they're coming from, hearing them out and being open to the fact that maybe we're indeed wrong. Yeah, this, this could be the, you know, what's the opposite of truth? Falsehood and learning, you know, this whole thing could be made up. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're in the matrix. But anyway, so, you know, this was, this was like the prototypical example of what not to do. Number one, you just, you know, you have an argument, argument that benefits you commercially. You put it, you look for evidence, you put it out there. It's, it's a lot of falsehoods in there. And then you get some gentle feedback and then you, you double down and say, no, oh, well, no, 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 no. It's just, uh, there, I, I, I want to be clear that we're not, we're not attacking this because the person disagreed with you. We're attacking this because the person put out initially without even knowing who you were or you knowing that person, uh, a premise that is wholly problematic. And several, this person, several, several and premi, premi, and did so without um, any hubris. I mean, with complete hubris, right? Well, and, I don't know if there was hubris, but it was just, yeah. Well, did it with great confidence as he also sold his product. Yeah. 
right? And, um, uh, and, and so this was challenged and it wasn't just challenged by you. No, no. Um, no. You, you weren't the only one to, to attack it. So um, I, I, I say this because I feel like it's our responsibility, not you and me, but ours as an industry to police these things. When we see it, we should do something. So as we migrate then into evidence and truth and learning and so forth, this is a good time for us to, to hear what you and Kara talked about. Do you want to introduce that segment? Kara basically talked about uh, two kind of scams that are happening in our field. One is an education scam where you go to an educational program and you're given uh, some learning that doesn't really help you uh, do something practical. And the second part is when you come out of one of these uh, diploma mills and you don't have the capability to get a job, there are then people who are scamming you into thinking that they can help you get a job. Okay. Well, uh, this is going to be a great conversation. And without further ado, Will and our friend Kara North. Here we are. Okay, I'm here with Kara North. And uh, Kara, I saw something really interesting you wrote the other day on LinkedIn. And I wanted to sort of drill down and find out about it because it seems like there's a little bit of um, bad acting going on in the learning space, in the L&D field particularly. And specifically for instructional designers. So, uh, why don't you, you know, sort of introduce us to the to the issue? Sure. So, obviously, as a lot of you know, if you're in this space, we are getting inundated with new folks, and it's wonderful. We're excited to have them. We want them to be part of the profession. But because there's so many new folks, I'm seeing scams pop up. So it's kind of twofold. So the first bucket of kind of the folks that are getting scammed are teachers that are currently teaching that want to transition into ID. And so a lot of times because they're looking and they're looking to try to figure out how to translate their resume and their experience into more of an ID friendly uh, speak, if you will, that's kind of a problem. And so a lot of times, again, it's hard for them to find their first job. But then another one that I've just seen blow up are people going to get master's degrees and they finish their program and they're like, okay, now what do I do? I need help finding a job. So I kind of called this out, if you will, on LinkedIn, because I'm just seeing people kind of fly by night, pop up asking these people for more money to learn a different method or, you know, fix themselves kind of stuff. And I just have a real problem with it, Will, because I think that people need to learn how to do their due diligence. My heart goes out to them because I know they're desperate. They really want to get that experience. They really want to get that first job. But I also really hate seeing people get taken advantage of. Well, and you know, that's been in the headlines uh, nationally or internationally about how these for-profit schools pop up and they scam people because people want to improve themselves. They want to have better careers or more opportunities. So, so, so these folks, and you say a lot of them are uh, in education, they're teachers, and they're looking for opportunities. And they go, they go to a master's program. And the master's program it doesn't prepare them. What, what, are the, what are the issues you see there? 
Sure. So a lot of the issues that I've seen are they're getting kind of a research intensive curriculum when they're going into these master's programs. Now, I'm not saying that not having research abilities is good or bad. I think it's wonderful to have a nice foundation. And I do think a lot of these programs are giving them foundation in a little bit of the learning sciences, maybe the history, the historical perspectives of kind of how we got here. But the problem I'm seeing is so many students leave these programs without having any digital artifacts of anything that they've done in the L&D space. They might have papers they wrote, they might have literature reviews, but they don't have kind of these things that employers are looking for that would be on a portfolio like a video or um, a curriculum outline of something that they built for an e-learning module, those kinds of things. And I think people are really hungry and desperate for that kind of experience. And I see uh, particularly one in particular, which I shared obviously with you, Will, um, somebody putting out their own method of how to design curriculum, and I saw their example module, and it was garbage. So wow. I actually sent this person a message. I said, hi, I looked at your site. I'm just curious, is the module that you have listed there, is that what you consider an exemplar? Because at first I thought, no way, like this has to be fake. I'm pumped, right? No, they were like, yes, of course it is. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so actually, I, I went to that link that you sent me, and it was horrible e-learning design. And that's a person that is uh, selling uh, some kind of program or advice or coaching to people that have already graduated with their master's degrees, and those people were not prepared. Correct. Right? Okay, so let's, let's focus on this. So there's people out there that are helping people that already have been scammed on this master's degree, and then they're scamming them again, uh, saying that they can get them jobs in industry. Yep. It's wow. crazy. <laughs> ah, it's, it's depressing. So now let's go back to the master's degrees a minute. So it sounds like uh, these universities or um, colleges have a bunch of, this is going to sound bad. This is my this is my hypothesis, right? And you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Sounds like they have a bunch of professors who have taught learning stuff, uh, you know, from a sort of theoretical perspective and the the, you know, the scientific perspective, but they've never really prepared. They never worked in the real world. They never created an e-learning program. They never well, they have taught obviously, but they haven't taught in industry in a way that's going to work for a training uh, program. Um, and they have these people, so they have this asset and they say, okay, let's, we can develop, uh, there's all these people that want to be instructional designers and uh, let's create a program for them. And they use the people that they have. And these people are good at some things. They're good at the science and the research and the theory, but they're not good at the practice. Is that correct? Is that a correct I, I think that's right on the money. And I actually, again, posted this on LinkedIn and there was somebody that commented either on this post or another similar post that I had that had a really great point. They said, I started my master's and I just gave up because I was so frustrated. I felt like I wasn't getting what I needed to be an instructional designer. And so one thing that if folks reach out to me, one of the number one things I tell them if they're looking to do a graduate certificate or a master's program is do your homework. 
And things that I would look for is one, on the pages of the, the school, do they have something on there about student portfolios, examples of student work? And another big one for me is, do they have professors that are considered clinical professors? Clinical professors are folks that are, have that practitioner experience plus the education experience to teach at that particular institution. And I see a huge gap in a lot of these programs that have no clinical professors just for what you just mentioned, Will, about they have this great teaching experience that they've kind of been in that higher ed bubble for a while, but unfortunately, again, going into an employer, going in for that interview, if somebody goes in with a literature review for a junior ID job, they're not going to get a second second interview, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, you reminded me about uh, <laughs> an experience I had. I got my PhD and I came out and I was asked to give a, a training presentation at a potential employer. And I gave like an academic presentation and I was not hired. <laughs> so I was not prepared myself. It took many years of... Uh, recovering from the academic experience till I was able to talk with real people again. Right. <laughs> wow. So, Kara, this is really good. I'm glad you're raising this issue on LinkedIn and sharing this uh, with us here at the Truth and Learning Podcast. Uh, any other words of wisdom? You know, one thing I was thinking as you were talking was that people ought to talk to students who are in the program before as well. To find oh, out. absolutely. Yeah. And, and find out, hey, how easy was it to find a job? What were, what were the strong parts of the program? What were the weak parts? What, what do you wish had been different? Um, that kind of thing as well. Yeah. Other, and again, the, the big thing I would say, again, do your due diligence. This is your future. Um, a lot of folks are paying for this out of pocket, taking out more loans, right? So you want to make sure that you're selecting the right fit for you, and if someone is telling you, oh, I'll mentor you, give me your money, you might wanna raise a little bit of a red flag. Now, there are reputable folks and programs out there, not discrediting those folks at all, but just make sure that you really do your due diligence, ask those questions, um, especially if you're buying like a program or something, you might want to look at what does the output look like? Um, what are, what's everything that they say that they're going to do? And if you can find somebody that's went through it, um, I think that's a great recommendation. We'll talk to people that's went through it. Um, they're really going to be able to give you the insights that maybe they don't necessarily put on the internet, right? <laughs> well, and Kara, do, do um, it, it occurs to me that our trade associations should help us in this way. They ought to have sort of a vetted list of higher education programs, of graduate programs, where you could go, where you'd know that somebody's looked at it and sort of given it the uh, good housekeeping seal of approval. Have you seen love, anything like that? I love the idea, but then I wonder if something is on some of the trade associations, is it because they grease the palm of that <laughs> no. particular organization to be featured, right? No, that's true. That's true. And I, we've, I've seen that. We've seen that. Um, yeah, it's too bad. It's too bad. Well, <laughs> we can only hope. Uh, all right, Kara, this has been great. Thank you so much. And by the way, I should have asked you this in the beginning, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? 
Oh, sure. Um, I'm Kara North. I'm a senior learning experience designer at The Ohio State University by day. At night, I am a PhD student in learning technologies, getting ready to go through my candidacy. So I'm really hoping to finish that by the end of the year. And um, I've worked in corporate and higher ed um, learning development for 12 years. And I've spent a good hunk of my career in higher ed. But before I came to higher ed, I was at Amazon for five years. So I've kind of got experience in both, both buckets. But um, really enjoy this career. It was a great choice for me. I fell into it like a lot of people. So I'm really blessed to still be here and still being able to help others. And again, I get so excited when I see new people coming in. I'm just like, welcome, come on in. But then that's why I think this bothers me so bad, Will, because most people, and you know this, because you've been around for, for way longer than I have. Forever, just say it. Well, just no, say it. no, Forever. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it that way, but I'm just saying most people in this profession are nice people. They're warm people. They care about others, right? And so it, it just kills me that some of these people are just getting bamboozled. It just eats me alive. It is. It's sad. It's a sad story. Um, and I think it's good that we, uh, you know, I always talk about being skeptical of uh, what you hear in terms of you know, research recommendations or design recommendations. But we need to be a little bit skeptical when we hear about opportunities like this as well. And you have a you have a podcast, right? I do. It's called Instructional Redesign, and it's stories and conversations about the modern learning experience. Um, I co-host that with my friend Joe Suarez, and we created it for people in the trenches. Um, we saw kind of a gap for that mid-level professional of what they're going to be getting and growing. So we interview people, we talk about projects, but we've gotten such a great response from people, and we really appreciate everybody that listens. Yeah, no, it sounds great. It sounds really important too, because uh, you know a lot of it's that's where the rubber hits the road, uh, right. learning from others. All right, Kara, I said goodbye several times now, and finally I'll say goodbye. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, we're back. Thanks, Will. That was a great interview with Kara. She's pretty cool. She's very cool. So I, I do. I, I did in listening to that have one mild area of disagreement and that's the notion that universities are pulling the wool over people's faces and i guess it it may be true right but uh, for me at least anyone who goes into a liberal arts or a social science area you're going to be dealing a lot of times with theory over practice and that not all institutions have a view that practice should be prioritized over theory. Um, I know that when I was at the U of R, University of Rochester, the business school uh, was very much distinguished from Rochester Institute of Technology's business school. RIT was very pragmatic, very practice oriented. U of R, the Simon School is very theoretical in their approaches. And they had very distinctive ways of looking at their curricula. And, uh, and so I, th I think I'm, I'm, I hazard, uh, to say that I'm not sure that the institutions are thinking of it in terms of pulling wool over people's uh, faces or trying to scam people, but that they have a, a pedagogical view, a perspective on what kind of curricula at a graduate level should, should be. Well, 
I think that's true, but you know, there's could be a difference between a liberal arts kind of education uh, where sort of agreement or the implied contract is you're going to go in, you're going to learn a lot of stuff about the world and civics and how things work. You're going to, you're going to get educated. Your vocabulary is going to increase your ability to process complex uh, information and concepts mm -hmm. will be better versus a, uh, a master's program that hints or tells you directly that you'll be able to get a better job when you come out. Well, again, I'm not sure that the people running the program think that you wouldn't be able to get a job coming out. So again, I, I, I just want to be careful that we're not implying that these are criminal acts. Maybe we disagree with the system, sure. Maybe okay. we disagree with how these universities are approaching it, yes. But I'd, I'd be careful uh, saying that some of these folks who are running these programs are indeed scamming us. Oh, uh, so, well, okay. So scam means there's intentionality behind it. Yeah, and I would say so. It could be that they think that, you know, if you learn the 17 theories of the diatonic scale in accordance with St. John the Baptist, that that's going to make you a better e-learning practitioner. Um, but, or, or more, more uh, realistically, that they think studying Vygotsky and Piaget are going to help make you a better e-learning designer. That would be more more in line with what's probably happening. Or we're going to study Gagne's ten principles. Actually, I don't remember how many he actually had because nine had, nine events of instruction. Thank you. The first so, one is to pay attention, which you, you clearly didn't do. <laughs> I was more worried about getting a job. Damn it. <laughs> Uh, well, but, so, but, but, but still, uh, even if there's no evil intent, I think that there's a, uh, a lack of uh, follow through or taking responsibility for, for your students. So, so but I, that's, that's a philosophical problem. And that's one we can certainly debate as, as a breakdown in, in the system. And I won't, I don't reject that at all. In fact, I have major problems with some of the instructional design graduate programs because uh, of just this issue. I find that a lot of the students are not prepared to do the work, let alone work with corporate clients and in and, and other settings and so forth. So I totally agree with the problem. But I, I, I find most of these people that we deal with are, are kind and smart and and educated, not necessarily well-trained. Okay, so you're being generous. If, 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 so so if, let, me, let me just ask you this straight out. Yeah. Uh, there's a university. Mm -hmm. uh, and they claim to have an e-learning program, uh, yeah. a program on how to create e-learning, how mm -hmm. to become an e-learning developer. And people coming out of the program uh, are not able to get jobs because they don't have a portfolio. They've never really actually done anything to create e-learning. They've just learned about it theoretically. That is acceptable. No, it's a crappy program. People shouldn't go to it or give them money. But I don't think anyone is sitting there saying, let's collect their money and, and, and hear all the ways we can screw them over. Oh, uh, that's I, fine. But still, so we might not want to arrest them, but we might, 
we might want to still hold them responsible. I would wholeheartedly agree with the need to hold them responsible. And, and I think this goes right along the same lines as us holding professional groups in our industry responsible. ASTD, sorry, ATD should be held responsible for all the pablum they put out and the crappy research they put out and all the certification programs they put out that don't qualify people to actually do anything. So I, I think we should hold all these people responsible, but I don't believe they're evil or, or trying to pull uh, a fast one. Well, okay, but how do we know? I mean, I, I don't really care, but how do we know? You, that you should not? care because one is morally reprehensible and the other I mean, is just incompetence. Well, well, but okay, so if, you, if you're a university and you're incompetent, you don't think you're going to get feedback from your students who have graduated and say, what the hell? I, I don't have a job. You didn't prepare me. Well, yeah, then you don't, if then you don't change your program. You should definitely change your program. Well, so they, they have been, you know, what, 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 they can go into All it. Right, but then we can, can, we can make the same argument in schools of education and how bad some of the teachers are coming out of it. And we can make the same argument in, in, with some of the psychology programs well, and how I horrible get, some of these folks are coming out I of it. I know, but people like you and me who are, you know, the journalists of the field, we should point it out. We should be disappointed. Again, I'm going on the semantic side here of okay. let's not call them scam artists. There are plenty of scam artists and snake oil salesmen that we should be attacking, like the people who sell disc. Okay. And the people who are still out there selling learning styles. These people are different than the folks out there trying to to manage a, a, a curriculum at a university. Anyway, I just want to sum this up by saying I think there's a difference when we're talking about uh, um, schools that are, are educationally oriented versus schools that are, are job oriented. So, um, you know, the, if you, you're going to the school to be able to get a job, I totally agree with what Kara was saying. I should be able to learn the practical skills, the pragmatic aspects of the role to be able to get the job. Alternatively, if I'm in a school that is traditionally not about transitioning you into a job, but giving you a degree on the thought and the theories and the mindsets and the philosophies behind the, the, the field, then you shouldn't actually expect it, I think. And I think it depends on which school you're in. And if and the, I, I, I think Kara was really smart about it. She said, look, as a consumer of education, you need to be uh, aware of what you're getting into. Exactly, exactly. And, so. and, and I think it's also interesting that, you know, you do need some depth. So you have some wisdom and you're able to think deeply about how to create learning, but you also need the practical. Uh, if you don't have yes. both, you're going to uh, not be as good as you could be. I, I totally agree with that. Brings us down to our, our last segment. And so I, I wanted to talk uh, about how we're approaching learning. And, and I've been doing a lot of in-house consulting work. And I'm shocked when I meet the e-learning designers. And they're in one room down this hall. And then you, you get your instructor-led face-to-face in-person designers. And they're all in this room. They don't talk to each other, by the way. And then you have your trainers who are in a different room and they don't talk to anyone. 
And then you have nowadays some people who are doing blended learning. I don't even know what that means anymore. And it's, it's highly problematic because I think that we are putting the onus on the platform first as a priority. And then we're thinking about design and it should be the other way around in my opinion. I shouldn't, I should understand the objective I want to achieve with the audience I want to do it with and, and why I want to do it. And then I determine the best platform to achieve that objective. Uh, and you know, we shouldn't just say I'm going to do an e-learning program because it's logistically more feasible to do e-learning. Is it even the right approach for that topic? Is it the right approach given what I want to do and so forth? And that's what I wanted to talk with you about, get your insights. You have uh, scared a heck of a lot of people with some of your e-learning versus face-to-face -face research. And Well, uh, I, did that, <clears throat> I did that research review uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's all changed now. No, it hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, number one. 2017. So if you uh, compare learning methods, use the same learning method on e-learning versus classroom training, you know, like an animation, you show it in the classroom and you show it online. There's no difference in the learning. But if you just sort of let people develop as they will, uh, e-learning tends to outperform uh, classroom training. But that's not because e-learning's great and perfect. It's because both are really mostly poorly designed, have too much content, not enough interaction, not enough good interaction, not enough support for remembering, not enough support for after training and follow through. And so both could be better. And that's sort of the main point of uh, that uh, research study. And so in the end, the platform is almost irrelevant if I understand my objective and decide which one's better. Well, yeah, uh, you know, what, what's one of the things that surprised me in doing that research was, you know, you think of e-learning, oh, we can just, we can do sort of the straightforward things in e-learning, but things that have a special social, you know, you really want to discuss it or it's important, you really better do that face-to-face. -face. Well, that's not true. People do these great, uh, really in-depth, emotionally tinged things on e-learning, just like they can do in the classroom. So. It doesn't really matter. You know, you could argue that we should be all moving more toward e-learning uh, because well, class. What do we mean by e-learning? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is the thing that I find irritating. Uh, I, Tiagi and I are running two-day workshops that are live, but using Zoom. And people spend in 16 hours with us in a virtual classroom. And we'll have... 20 people in the virtual room. We have breakout sessions. I can pretty much replicate every activity I do in a in-person classroom now on Zoom. So there, so is there a big difference? Well, there, there, you know, from a learning standpoint, probably not. Well, you know, there's times, of course, when you want to uh, have some face-to-face -face interaction or it's more you know, you're trying to get stuff more, more than just training across. You want people to be able to network better. Or, but that's not a learning objective, right? It, that's it's, that's it's a, a different objective. It's still a program objective. Okay, but it's not, it's not part of the learning transfer. Uh, 
Well, right. I mean, don't we have to separate out what are program objectives from from learning objectives versus social objectives versus? No. Look, we're we're there in the learning department, the learning right. team. We're, we're the learning and performance team, and the organization comes to us and says, "Okay, hey, Will and team, what we really want from you is we need a really good onboarding program." Okay, great. Now. Here's some of the things we're hoping to get out of this onboarding program. We want people to know a little bit about the organization. We want them to really feel at home here. We want them to feel, you know, that they're connected with other people so that they don't leave later, et cetera. Uh, we want them to, you know, have a sense of the premises, you know, where they can go in the buildings, et cetera. All these things are important for our onboarding program. Um, so, you know, you guys can make it any way you want. You can do e-learning, mobile learning, classroom, you know, Whatever, what do you do? Well, for, first of all, I, I'm going to distinguish between what's learning and what's other. There are there are components to onboarding that have nothing to do with learning something, such as getting acclimated to the people I'm going to work with. That's not a learning thing. That's a social endeavor. But I'm still charged with it. You are, but but if we don't differentiate, then that changes the way we approach how to do it. Uh, all right, so let's forget onboarding because that's too right. But I mean, what if I'm trying to teach uh, basic finance, finance for non-financial managers? What What's your objective? Why do you want them to know it? I think all non-finance people should understand what the three bottom lines are as managers. So, so I'm a manager. I should understand that there are three basic fundamental numbers. And how, as a manager, I can drive to those numbers or manage those numbers and, and be able to present those numbers and, and, and leverage those in my decision-making. Okay. Right? So then, no, yeah, then it probably doesn't matter. Right. Uh, what about leadership? Leadership is so vague and nebulous. Mm, yeah, but one of the things about leadership is you want people to be able to interact with other people, their direct reports, and you want them to sort of pick on, pick up on the cues in the environment and the cues from the other people and react in the appropriate ways. So and my favorite, my favorite approach now with leadership is to do asynchronous but facilitated training. So you better so, describe that to our. Listeners. So we give them uh, asynchronous modules that have simulations where they get introduced to the concepts, they get to practice the skills in a, in a simulated format, but then they have to go off and do something with the people they work with and either take video, uh, journal it, take photos, interview the people they're working with and submit that to the facilitator to receive video-based feedback. And so it's asynchronous, but it's still facilitated. And they're going back out. And as you said, they're having to engage with the people that they work with. And so, so that's also live and synchronous in many ways too, right? So I don't even know how to describe that kind of format uh, using the terminology we use. But that I'm finding the feedback we're getting from participants is uh, that it's immersive. And then we're seeing massive changes in, in behavior and performance back on the jobs. Um, as we we analyze these things, and that's well, moving out of the classroom. Yep. Yeah, so that sounds workable. I mean, you could argue that 
uh, it'd still be nice to have an observer who can pick up on the sort of uh, body language that might be more difficult in an online environment, things like that. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, uh, to be to be fair, that that's very true because all we're getting are video based uh, data, right? I mean, I mean, you can simulate yeah. the facial expression, like you know. We're no, I mean we're getting video of them in a room with their their employees. Oh, you but are you, getting that video. Yeah, but we can't. But but you don't see it in the moment, and there's nuance that doesn't get captured on the video. So that, right. that's a fair point. I mean, you don't you don't see their legs shaking or correct. Yeah, and you often don't even see the sweat, right? If they're nervous right. and the, right, there are little things you don't see. So that's true. Right. So, but, but so, I mean, I guess we're in agreement, which is kind yeah. of boring. But you know. Oh, God. <laughs> All right. Well, that that ends this segment. But, <laughs> but, but I will go back to your the way you framed it in the beginning was you know you got these e-learning practitioners and you got these uh, classroom training practitioners and they're in, down the hall from each other. Uh, you know, part of that's got to just be practical, right? Some people know how to use the tools of e-learning and others don't, so you can't. You know. Well, I get that. I'm, uh, I, I, I'm fully, uh, I, I'm aware that for me, the, the trick is don't assign an, uh, a course to the e-learning paradigm, whatever that may be, without first defining what the objectives are and the desired outcomes and where on LTEM do we want to be. And, and, and from there, you can leverage logistics to help make the decision. Or from there, you can leverage based on this curriculum and, and outcome we're looking for, this might be better in this capacity. Too often we're making the decisions first on logistics and then we're looking at the design. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, although I'll just, let me argue this a little bit. You freaking devil. <laughs> I'm trying to be the devil. Um, and uh, that was not your accent if you heard your accent in my voice at that moment. Um, the there is uh if we have to fly a bunch of people all across the world to go to a face-to-face -face training that might not be good for uh their health or the health of the planet through the pollution of the airlines and so there's some you know you might want to have one of your considerations be uh you know sustainability uh -huh. I'm I'm good with that, but first, let's say, can it, based on this objective, is e-learning even a feasible option? And and what about the cost of the e-learning? Maybe the programming of it, maybe making sure we have all the tools and resources because we don't have them already in house, will make that cost prohibitive to begin with. Absolutely, I'm right? just saying and to so, take all these things into consideration. I'm with you. I'm gold. But you know, you actually had this interesting discussion about. Uh, webinars versus online webinar uh, online training that well let's get the name right it's called LVOT live virtual online training I'm registering this as a trademark it will go next to L10 <laughs> I know I, yeah <laughs> I tried to complain about that yeah. uh, acronym and his response <laughs> was from the guy who created LTEM. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I noticed you didn't say anything back on that one. <laughs> I did say something I back. I said, good point. <laughs> good. <laughs>
Oh, uh, okay. So my, I actually, this came from our friend Cassie, Cassie Labori, who is really strongly trying to distinguish between the webinar, which she defines as a lot of people, kind of like the keynote of e-learning, right? Um, and then in contrast to that, doing training that's virtual and face-to-face, uh, -face, right? So it's, it would be what we've in the past called a webinar with lots of activities. And she would argue that this is a lot fewer people and that uh, with fewer people, you're able to have more uh, interaction and so forth. And so she distinguishes it uh, like the keynote versus the training program. And I think this is really valuable because I don't know about you, but when we try and run webinars, people expect them to be free. If I throw any kind of price on a webinar, no one comes. If I use the name webinar, they want it to be as a freebie. But if I call it a training, we we get paid. Um, oh, I really, I always get uh, like fifteen, twenty thousand for each of my webinars. But you know, that's truth, just me. truth and learning, will truth <laughs> and learning. Uh, so well, you know, it's a dreamscape, dreamscape. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, I find that to be actually a really good point of, of hers. And then that leadership or the uh, coaching slash leadership course I was describing to you is, is a format that's, that's so much more than, than a webinar format. Um, Absolutely. You know, and Tiagi keeps calling our, our two day course, a, a webinar, a series of webinars. I'm like, please stop. Don't call it that because no, no. no one will no, come. No. No, absolutely. The connotation of a webinar is you show up for about 45 minutes to 60 minutes. You're sort of half paying attention and then it's done. Yeah. And, and that, that's a, you know, it's, it's a fine thing. You know, people get a sense of, you know, whether they want to learn more about it, which is great, but uh, it's not real training. It doesn't really take right. things further, et cetera. Um, and, and there's all different, types of alternatives. You've got this nice design where you have people go back into the workplace and do things and you videotape them and you get feedback and you have cycles of that. Um, you know, I have an, I have an online workshop. Uh, it's, uh, I call it, I now have, I call it online anytime, right? Cause you can right. go on anytime. You can get started anytime. You can end anytime. You can go fast. You can go slow. Um, it's got uh, discussions. It's all, it's all asynchronous. It's about 12 hours of content. This is my presentation science workshop. And uh, it's a great experience. People like it. You know, the first person that got through it said this is the best e-learning they've ever had. But it's completely different. Well, they, they haven't taken my coaching course. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. just I saying. Mean, I, I'm just saying. Hold a candle to your. Of course coaching. not. I mean, who can? But, but, you know, what's interesting is it's hard to know how people value these things. You know, because, you know, if you go to um, some of the, well, you know, ATD, you go there and you go take one of their courses, it's basically, um, it's, it's basically four webinars and a smile sheet. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, that's about it. Yeah. Uh, now, some of the instructors. Do I get a certification? Oh, of course. Okay, good. Certificate. I don't know if it's certification. You get a certificate. Okay. It's the same but, thing. But. But you know, and, and you know, so I mean, that's another buyer beware kind of thing out there. There's some things, right. and we're we're this is you know we're in the pioneer phase, so there's a lot of crap lot out of there, crazy things happening. Well, and this is this is the thing. I just uh, to me, I'm getting more and more interested in 
in the notion that it doesn't matter what the platform is as long as it's the right platform, that the tools are the tools. We can use it as long as we use the tools properly and correctly, then they're going to support us in our good designs. If we have crappy designs, then it doesn't matter what tool we're using. And if we use the tool instead of having good design, and if we rely too much on the tool itself, then you end up with PowerPoints. I mean, uh, PowerPoint is a great example. I just saw a friend of mine write a post on on LinkedIn. Boy, we are really on LinkedIn too much. I think, but but I think, saying that PowerPoints are, are the world's worst thing in the world for training, and yet at the same time, I know that if they're used properly, they're actually a really good tool. And so the, this notion of the tool being the problem, well, no, it's the bad design that's the problem. It is. It is. And there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Um, you know, yeah, well, the PowerPoint thing, that irks me. Well, Ooh, I, I want us to terrible. do, I want us no. to do an entire segment on PowerPoint. Okay, we'll wait okay. for that then. Yeah, but, I want us to so, nail that one. So I, I agree. I mean, ideally, what we would do is we would uh, figure out our, our, our training needs or our learning and performance needs, and then we would figure out what tool to use. Now, we don't all have that flexibility. And I don't, we shouldn't think that any tool will do, you know. I went, before I developed my courses, I went online, I looked at, I needed a, a e-commerce platform, an e-commerce e-learning platform, so that I could actually sell my workshops um, online. So I looked at some tools like, uh, I think there were Thinkific and Teachable, and I looked at what capabilities they had, and I was, not pleased. They didn't do enough from a learning design perspective that I wanted to use them. And I found another tool, uh, Pathrite, pathrite.com. You can go check them out. They're good people. And um, it's, it's a much better tool. Now, does it have everything? No. Uh, so number one, you know, you, we can't, we don't want to blame the tools, but we do want to find a tool that has the affordances that we want. Um, at the same time, no matter what tool we have, we have to be creative in our workarounds. No tool is perfect, has everything, uh, at least not yet. And so we have to figure out what good design is and then build that in, right. do workarounds where we need that. I always say do the perfect design that you can and then make your compromises after that. I like that. All right. All right. On that note, we move to the best and the worst. Can I share my, my worst first? You may. Okay. So my worst is the PowerPoint. I'm bringing it up because it, I just shared it with you, but it's been irking me that, that a, a person is taking the Tiagi methodology of activities, using activities and our rapid design approach, and it's the activity stupid. You know, our whole philosophy of build the airplane while you fly it you know, let the inmates run the asylum, all of our principles. And this person is using PowerPoint as the, the, the impetus for changing the way that PowerPoint is the death of good training, that it's due to the PowerPoint being misapplied. And, and that's, that's ruining uh, adult learning and training. And I found this to be utterly uh, a misunderstanding of 
Tiagi's approach and my approach and, and your approach. And, um, and I felt it was a disservice to PowerPoint, which when used properly does exactly what it was supposed to do and a little bit more. And so I find that as the worst of the week for me. That's a good one. Uh, the best of the week. Uh, I, I have been very, very happy to see all the responses of, uh, of people talking about uh, icebreakers going down. So I, I wrote a little thing on, on down with the icebreaker, down with stupid activities, down with making funny noises and, and making your participants do inane things in the name of getting along or, or getting to know each other better and, and uh, in either after lunch or right before the training begins and so forth. And I expected to get killed because even though we know in our circle enough people that, that avoid this, there, I, I see it all the time. And, and uh, I was so happy to see overwhelming response uh, in agreement um, that stupid activities and inane activities, fril frivolous and frilly activities are, are, are condemned almost universally. So that was very nice to see. So those were my best and worst of the week. So Matt, if you were going to be a really good trainer, but you had to be a trainer in animal form, what animal would you be? I kind of think I'm a, like a golden retriever. Uh, well, my worst of the week is what we already discussed, that uh, LinkedIn-related uh, article that had all the falsehoods in it, and then the confirmatory bias on top of that. That was, that was definitely the thing that pierced my heart the worst this week. Bastard. Yeah, man. So uh, the best of this week just happened today. I got an email out of the blue from our friend Jane Bozarth. Oh. And she is uh, contributing $1,000 to the Learning Styles Challenge to what? raise it up to $6,000. Oh. Did you see she uh, had a post today about Learning Styles? She is a big Learning Styles, anti-Learning Styles person. Debunker. Yes. Yeah. So, um, all right, we'll call out to Jane. Yeah, Jane is awesome, and she's written several articles on this. And uh, we're gonna all right. We'll link, we'll link to the one of those. I'll find it and uh, we'll put it on the episode notes. So that is so cool. I would like to match Jane's uh, donation, or or what, what is it? A bit. Yep, I will give one cent for every dollar she gives. Well, she's given a thousand dollars. I'll give one penny for every dollar. <laughs> okay, what's that? It means I don't have a thousand dollars. So, <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, what's that? I, you do the math. I mean, <laughs> That's ten dollars. It's ten dollars. You're gonna give a dollar? Ten dollars. Ten dollars. Okay. So now we have. And by, by the way, this this uh, learning way style, to ruin it for me. Yeah, this learning styles challenge. Started back in 2016, um, and uh, the challenge was if you could demonstrate that you created uh, an e-learning program that took into account learners' learning styles, and that you created better results by using that, 
you would get this money. And then it started at $1,000. I put that in. And then uh, we had Tiagi, yeah. Guy Wallace, and uh, Bob Carlton uh, add uh, $1,000 each. Actually, Bob put in two, one, 1000 for his company, 1000 for himself. All right, well, uh, and you got 10 for me. And we got 10 bucks from that now. So it's $6,010. Well, on that note, Will, as always, it's been delightful. It's been great. What a okay. great way to spend a Friday afternoon. All right, Matt, it's been great. Always is. Bye. Bye.